Hi, thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Honor Cast. The Good Trash Honor Cast is brought to you in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Because at one point or another, someone stopped loving you. The Good Trash Honor Cast is also brought to you in part by listeners like you. For more information, go to Patreon.com forward slash GTGC. Tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? Good Trash Genre Cast. If I'm going to die... I'm going to die historic on the Fury Road. You are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of. But you have heard of. What makes you I stumbled across a recording while I was cleaning him. He says he belongs to someone called Obi-Wan Kenobi. I thought he might have meant old Ben. Do you know what he's talking about? Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is called Wolf. It's not about a wolf. Um, sort of about a wolf, sort of about how we're all wolves, but we'll talk more about that here later as we discuss this film. But first we must identify the disembodied voices speaking directly into your brain through your headphones, car speakers, or other generic MP3 playing device that you happen to use to listen to this show. To my right, sir, identify yourself. My name is Dalton Stewart and the worm has indeed turned Mary and now it's packing an Uzi. <laughs> very, very good. Across the table, if you would. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and Dalton, don't tell people you had a drop of tequila in your coffee this morning. You didn't have coffee this morning. It's true. He did not. He just I, had tequila. I did just have tequila this morning. That's how he has breakfast That's That's day. how I ended up in that car wreck. Well, that's how the worm got the Uzi. Okay. <laughs> Was the tequila. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my name is Dustin Sells. I'm just marking my territory, guys, and I'm so glad to be here with you all talking about Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer, James Spader, and others in a film called Wolf. Uh, we're very, very excited to be talking about this film with you all. I want to warn you, though, it's not a review show. It's an analysis show, and that means there will be spoilerific spoiler riches, and we will see if that Omega female will ever make it back up the pecking order of the pack. Yeah, so if you give a shit about the almost completely forgotten 1994 werewolf film Wolf starring Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, we'll give you a heads up when spoilers are going to start. If you care. If you care. But before we get into any of that spoiler territory, we'll have a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, and then our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and then we'll get down to business, and that's when the spoilers will happen. You have been warned. Let's begin now with that synopsis from... The voice of the cinema, if you would, sir. Publisher Will Randall becomes a werewolf and has to fight to keep his job. <laughs> really? Oh my god! Is that really it? That, Are is, you what happens, me? that is what happens. In this I movie. mean, that's oh he's my, a publisher. Oh my god! That is what happens in this movie. The movie is mostly about him uh, jockeying for position. Yes, it is. It's all about a Game of Thrones Calling. inside a publishing house. Climbing up that corporate ladder the hard way. Indeedy, indeedy. Well, let's go ahead and get into those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. I ask you first, Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what say you in terms of review for this film? This is a goofy movie. <laughs> this oh. is, it was fine. I mean, it's not anything to write home about. It's 1994. I have to keep that in mind before I criticize the no, animatronics too much. Oh, they're really bad. Um, and I don't know. I love James Spader in this film, and I love Niles from Frasier, too. He had a really delightful little bit part. Um, people's performances were fine. The editing was nothing to write home about. Ultimately, I really don't have a lot of bad things to say about this movie. I don't have a lot of great things to say about this movie. Um, I am a little... I'd be interested to hear what you guys say about this, but Nicholson only plays roles where he's 
Nicholson. I mean, there's no like deviation I felt like in the movies for this marathon that we watched. It's just basically um, one man's descent for various reasons into uh, varying states of madness, a la his shining performance. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, I I would say this is one of the more nuanced performances from Jack because uh, the meek and mild Will Randall at the beginning of the film. I mean, Jack is acting. I mean, it is one of the. I mean, there is a, there is definitely a truism to the fact that Jack Nicholson pre- frequently plays Jack Nicholson in most of his films, and that he is just this crazy person um, who's wild eyed and sort of overbearing. But this film is not one of those cases. I think. I mean, he becomes that. Yes, I mean, but I, I would agree. I, I get what you're saying, Dustin. I think you're correct. I mean, we did also pick films from the the back half of Jack Nicholson's career, and we did that intentionally because that's kind of where most of the trash is in his filmography. That's where the most of the fun and his weird, wacky performances are, are in the later stages of his career. Uh, I get what you're saying. No, I, I agree with you, Dustin. I think there is some some real acting going on from Nicholson here, particularly when he's being the, the meek and mild Will Randall, because meek and mild are not two adjectives one would dis- use to describe Jack Nicholson. No, I, yeah, I would agree with that. But I, the fact that he does have the eventual turn into crazy well, yeah, he what, does play a werewolf. is what like <laughs> yeah. the thing, the theme that I keep on seeing across all these good trash selections. Um, yeah, it's, it's fine. Don't really plan on watching it again. So that's the, that's that I, I guess. All right. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohan and Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say in terms of thumbs up, thumbs down review? This movie is fucking bonkers, guys. Mm. I think it's a delight. I, I love it. I think it's, it's delightful. It's not good. But it is a lot of it, it's just so silly and wacky and not on purpose. Uh, yeah. There are times when they, they are playing it completely straight face. There are times when the, it's being played tongue in cheek. There are about four different movies going on, and I think all of them are interesting and weird and delightful. I I, I, I like this movie a lot. Guys, Jack Nicholson pees on James Spader's shoes in this movie. Yes, he does. What other film can you say that about? That's wonderful. That's so funny hilarious this is the best werewolf movie we've done since wolf cop it's the only werewolf movie we've done since wolf cop and i would say in terms of weird silliness um this is about as weird and silly as you're going to get out of a werewolf movie unless you go full bore on purpose tongue-in-cheek like wolf cop does Mm -hmm. i I think wolf is a lot of fun i hadn't seen in years i probably saw it's like 11 or 12 with my grandfather who loves this movie my granddad unabashedly unironically loves wolf he thinks it's great. Um, and that was the last time I saw it was with him on VHS when I was like 12. I, I think it's fun. I really enjoyed it. It's silly. It's it's weird. Um, it doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. It's so many different movies. I mean, as Arthur Synopsis pointed out, this movie's mostly about him trying to keep his job. It's barely about him becoming a werewolf until like the last 20 minutes of the movie. And frankly... That's the least interesting part of the movie. You get some of the funnest, silliest, weirdest, most uncomfortable stuff in those sequences towards the end. But as far as the actual in- engaging parts of the movie, it's early on where he's like, oh, now I'm young and virile again. I'm going to get my job back. Call all, call all the named authors I've worked with. It's it's delightful. It's weird. Uh, David Schwimmer shows up. Um, Niles shows up from Frasier. It's wonderful. Allison Janney's there for 30 yes, seconds, a blink and you miss her as a party goer. It's great. It's a great cast. It's silly. It's stupid. It's a lot of fun. I like it a lot. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, what I would say about Woody Allen's uh, The Wolfman is this. So spot on. Yeah, let's go ahead and take a step back. Mike Nichols directed this movie. Yes. Of The Graduate, Mike Nichols, and countless other really good films. 
But no, I think it's well-written. I think it's well-paced. It does feel a little slow at moments, but it is very much a drawing room sort of story, uh, much akin to the original Dracula by Todd Browning, which uh, most of it takes place uh, in drawing rooms as people have conversations about what's going on. And so it, it definitely does tap into some of those genre tropes uh, that are part of uh, that uh, particular genre of the big monster classic monster horror films. I think Jack's performance is great. I think Michelle Pfeiffer is amazing. Um, again, Spader's very, very, very good in everything that he does, and it is much more a story about a man and what it means to be a man than it is about sort of this werewolf transformation. And even though I think there's a little, there's very little effort put into the makeup effects. I mean, basically, Arthur and I were discussing this off mic earlier. There, there. Basically, Jack Nicholson becomes sort of a Civil War general. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they don't care. They put some contacts and some teeth in. He grows some mutton chops <clears throat> and juts his jaw. It's very bare bones werewolf makeup. I, really reminds me a lot of the makeup from the wolfman yes uh, at times although i do feel like kira knightley was was inspired by this film for her performance of uh her character in a dangerous method there's a lot of jaw jutting that goes on here and she does definitely definitely seem to be aping jack nicholson in some (laughs) weird way um in that but nonetheless uh, check out those two movies side by side and tell me what you think dear listener but i like it a lot i think it's a lot of fun i saw this movie uh the second time uh in preparing for the show the first time was in theater so it's been 21 years between viewings and I, for for my money i thought it was fun and i liked it then and i still like it now anyway um it's a lot of fun i like it a lot i enjoy it thoroughly but enough of this foolishness guys it's time to get down to business <laughs> That's right, dear listener, and that business is analysis. We are not just talking about what happens in the story and whether we like it or not. We're talking about what it means and how we can have further conversation about the human condition in American society. And we're very, very excited to be doing all of that right here and right now. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What analysis do you bring? The longest stretch of this movie is about office politics uh, and Jack Nicholson trying to, like, very kind of half-heartedly giving his job up to James Spader through a lack of ambition and then once he uh, gets, the more werewolfy he gets, the more ambitious he gets, especially after James Spader, he finds out James Spader has been sleeping with his wife. He is now much more invested in keeping his job and does so by uh, getting Niles from Fraser to uh, help him make it look like they're going to start a rival publishing house and take all the big name authors. Like, this is what happens in this movie. It's an office politics movie. Without the werewolf, it looks a lot like a Mike Nichols movie. Yeah. It's weird. It's so weird. But what I think is really interesting is this this notion of selling out. Um, I think that's really interesting that this is the subject matter Mike Nichols and company choose to really focus on is the office politics and how this new unlocked virility within uh, Jack Nicholson has uh, stopped him from accepting his lot and has made him decide to fight for it. And the way he fights for it is by suggesting to all these authors that the publishing house is now a bunch of sellouts and they're only going to push books that move, that, that, that sell. And, and I think it is interesting, this whole notion of buying in and selling out. And, and that is what we're, and it's especially interesting because this is a baby boomer movie. Everyone in the Absolutely. cast is a baby. <clears throat> everyone in the cast is a baby boomer. I think maybe you could argue that James Spader's Gen X, uh, but he was born in like 75. No, he was born in the early 70s. So I think he's still, he's almost in that baby. He's my mom's age. Yeah, he's born in like 64. So he's still a baby boomer too, because it's 
a large age cohort. So I think that's very interesting that you have a film that is populated by baby boomers, a generation famous for selling out, that are all talking about selling out and how it's not something you should do. And this newfound wolfiness, for lack of a better word, is what inspires Jack Nicholson to fight back against the shackles of this system that he's in instead of uh, accepting his new position as the editor of uh, the Eastern European market. He's uh, fighting James Spader for his old job back. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. It's stupid, but it is interesting. And I, I think that is something we try to look for on the show is things that are stupid but are also interesting in their own way. And I think if there has ever been a film that is very stupid and very interesting, it is Wolf. So it's just curious to, to, to me, I, I guess, that that's what Mike Nichols focuses on. is. And, and Jack Nicholson's about to let it go, by the way. Uh, he's just like, all right, well, whenever. Uh, and then it's really James Spader sleeping with his wife. It becomes this territorial dispute. Yeah. Uh, and because of his new werewolfism, he's much more territorial. So he's going to fight for this job that doesn't even really seem to want. He doesn't really seem to care about the job that much. Uh, that he was, that's why he was okay with being fired. He's like, oh, whatever. Who cares? But he does choose to buy in. And through the promise of of how evil selling out is, get his job back. It, it is kind of a weird – it is the most baby boomer like plot struggle that I could think of. Well, it's not about the game at all. It's about winning. Exactly. Exactly, and that's he chooses to play the game. He chooses to buy in and play the game, and the way he plays the game is by convincing all these authors that they're going to be working for a bunch of sellouts if they don't buy in with him. It is fascinating to me. Uh, and I know Alex is going to talk about masculinity a little, a little bit, and I think there is so much of that going on in this film, and really any werewolf movie. There, there is always something about masculinity going on or the... Um, more primal aspects of human nature etc but i i think that is the weirdest the way they choose to explore primal human nature is through the least primal thing that humans do which is have marketing departments and and publishing houses it's weird and silly and stupid but i think it is fascinating and i think that's why wolf is it's worth checking out it's not worth going out of your way for but if you happen if it does ever start streaming for free on you know Hulu or Netflix I think you should you know take the two hours to watch it because you'll never see anything else like it anywhere else uh it it is a one of a kind movie um but to me again the the idea of these baby boomers arguing about selling out is really fascinating uh, and I'm glad the film spent so much time <laughs> talking about it even though it is pretty pointless True facts. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what say you in terms of analysis? Well, as Dalton alluded to, we're going to talk about masculinity because that is a popular trope and archetype whenever con contemplating issues around werewolves in popular literature, um, in allegorical type stories. Uh, the werewolf is really tied closely to masculinity. As we we discussed with the doctor, the doctor scene, I can't remember the doctor's name, but he's like the possession, what, wolf, the animal possession doctor. The not a shaman The shaman. not a shaman shaman. No, I don't mean animal possession. I mean animal possession. possession. Um, we're not just owning cattle here. We talk about... <laughs> We talk about the passion of the wolf as, um, and we, as I just previously 
discussed, werewolfdom deals with issues regarding not just masculinity, but hyper-masculinity. Uh, a lot of people discuss the effects of hyper-masculinity, which are like hypersexuality, super strength, more keen senses, all of these things really um, exemplified by the werewolf. But um, so... Virility and violence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Virility and violence. That's uh, my new punk rock band name. Um, but what would cause... What causes werewolfdom? Um, we always get the effects of like somebody somebody snaps and and things happen and and then someone kind of transforms. But what is what is that inciting incident? So it's kind of interesting, and um, I'm going to propose that um, the inciting incident of Will getting bitten is kind of a a metaphor or a representative of him getting t- treated for low testosterone. Go on. <laughs> well, it just whenever we talk about the passion of the wolf, the passion of the wolf, um, you know, testosterone being the primary male uh, hormone, and a lot of people dealing with treatments of low testosterone then have to, um, whenever they regain and go to the doctor for for these kinds of matters, they uh, regain some of that lost spark, fire, etc., if you will, and. Keep in, in mind Dalton's analysis. Baby boomers. Baby boomers are in the market for products and treatments such as that help with uh, low, low T. Or if you watch uh, daytime TV or even just like sports ball, you'll see the Cialis uh, bathtub people or the Viagra hanging out. What's that for? I don't know what's going on here. What are you talking about? I'll, I'll tell you when you're older. Okay. <laughs> um, but there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing shameful regarding the treatment of uh, low testosterone. But a lot of men are ashamed to be considered anything less than hypermasculine, um, which is an interesting crisis regarding uh, people's perspectives of manhood. Uh, werewolves overall make one considers what society requires from men and how men are defined by their actions um, without... Uh, how men are defined by their actions and without an injection of the tropes of masculinity, you know, Will's story would have been a lot different in this film. He would have, you know, just been taking, taking things really passively. He would have just continued on. So I would say that, you know, in this film, this could be read as one man's journey to, to kind of regain, um, through perhaps a midlife crisis in in his middle management job, um, what we, he once had but now is lost. But in conclusion, uh, masculinity is a performance, and uh, for the men in this film, they, whenever they decide to perform back to society's standards, there are lots um, lots of consequences to that. Yes, and none of them are all that positive. Right, exactly. I mean, I think it also is a critique of you know, this is what we expect men to be, but when we take it to its natural conclusion, it gets fucking crazy. People and people are suffering and dying at the hands of it. Yeah, and Michelle Pfeiffer sort of acquiesces to her objectification throughout all this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the, no one. The only reason why anyone's going to be interested in you is because you're beautiful. Oh God, right? that scene that really speech, bothered yeah. me <laughs> in a serious way. And then she goes ahead and you know continues a relationship with her after he says, "This is exactly what I'm thinking." You know, I mean, she like rebuffs him at first, but then she goes ahead and acquiesces anyway. Right. It's troubling, very troubling. Thank you very much, yeah. Miss Alexander Bohannon. Uh, what I want to say in terms of analysis is. 
I want to talk a little bit about some things that have been kind of kicked around a little bit here and there uh, throughout the course of uh, this discussion of this film. This is a Mike Nichols joint. This is a uh, great auteur of uh, the new Hollywood cinema. And uh, this is one of those uh, movies that seems to be much more schlocky, at, though it does not feel like any of the Howling films or Werewolf in London or other sort of uh, werewolf revivals that we experience. It is Woody Allen's you know, Wolfman film, which is very, very strange. And I want to think about Jay Hoberman and his uh, book on vulgar modernism and this idea of that which is um, very much schlocky, very much pop culture, and yet it still sort of um, raises itself to a level of a higher form of art. Now, Hoberman talks a lot about sort of the self-reflexivity and whatnot that we find in Warner Bros. cartoons and, uh, you know, Daffy Duck and those kinds of things uh, where, you know, the hands being drawn and painted on and then erased as because the artist becomes angry at what's going on. It's a great little uh, Warner Brothers short uh, that we're talking about there. But we see this werewolf film that becomes a discussion of, you know, class issues, uh, issues of capitalism, issues of of misogyny, much more so than this moment where young men begin to grow hair in funny places and start thinking about girls, which is what most werewolf films are about. It's it's much more about a high culture, high art sort of moment. And there is a moment at the dinner party very early when Will Randall is still very much the meek and mild, and they're asking questions about culture and this sort of art house publishing company um, that they're discussing. He says, we don't have culture anymore. We've got pop culture and he goes on to talk about you know oprah winfrey and middle and gay senior citizens like what is this dude's deal that was a very really well, it's 90s homophobia uh, no it, i know i know but yes and no it is 90s homophobia i think what he's talking about which is the thing that made me think about selling out in the first place and i don't think he's it's kind of a weird prescient conversation in this film it's like oh no we just have popular culture now and it is this idea that we're going to have something of no substance, uh, and we're going to have a different packaging for it for every different kind of human being that consumes media. Um, but it's all going to be the same um, useless, trite bullshit that doesn't really mean anything. It's just going to be packaged for every different uh, quadrant that we can think of covering. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, go ahead. Oh, I was just about to say, his speech reminded me of all of those think pieces pr uh, published by the New Yorker or Time or whatever that are like critiques of, um, you know, the the right the fall of the boomer and the boomer lifestyle and like what boomers consider culture, art, etc. Um, and the rise of, you know, Gen Xer, millennial type uh, media, media consumption patterns and like desires. Because, I mean, I remember this once there's always, always these cultural critiques and it's always about let's damn them to hell. Like damn whatever is happening, not the people damn them to hell because they're, you know, not acting in the way that we expect them to act. They're acting, you know, in, in ways that we don't approve of and they're not high culture, high art. And, and certainly the film's aware of this. Douglas Coupland has already put out um, the titular novel Generation X, coining the term for this particular generation uh, that we're talking about. That they're sort of shiftless and addicted to popular culture and those sorts of things. Now, when he makes his move to take over the publishing house, he is making the statement about how we're going to make sure that um, – People think of this publishing company as those who only care about that which sells, that which is the most massive of the mass media, that which makes the most money, and that which is sort of more high art, um, more um, 
you know, I'm thinking Greenwood Press and uh, those sorts of presses that are putting out stuff like uh, you know, William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch and, and those kinds of novels, um, Beckett novels, etc., uh, high modernist uh, sorts of pieces of art that those sort of uh, novels are just not going to be paying attention to. And that's why these named authors are going to run with Niles and Jack Nicholson. And, uh, and, and I was thinking this film is interestingly a conversation about that because what we're doing is we're packaging a werewolf movie in a film about culture and art and class. And that itself is a fascinating move that Nichols is making. And I think what Nichols is saying is exactly the same thesis that Hoberman is bringing forward, is that modernism need not look like James Joyce's Ulysses. It need not look like something that is um, sort of um, inaccessible something that's sort of impossible to sort of access that you can actually say high art and, uh, you know, super satirical, super critical, super theoretical things about culture, about what's going on, about misogyny and masculinity and about the things that we've discussed. And you can do so in the confines of that, which was made for children in the 1930s and forties, which are the horror films at that time. They're, they're kids stuff. Uh, and we think about horror films and we think about the R rating. And this film has this very, very bizarre, R rating. Um, I do miss the days of the soft R. Um, I really, really do. The days in which you had films that were clearly for grown-ups, they were clearly for adults, not for children, but they weren't necessarily explicit or um, transgressive necessarily. You know, not that I mind explicit or transgressive cinema in any way, but I do miss that day in which you had these kinds of films, and you really couldn't have that in this day and age. So this film doesn't go for that sort of hard R. But what it does, though, in though in the fact that it is absolutely a grown up story, it's not a movie for kids. It's a werewolf movie that's absolutely not marketed for the the monster kids that John Carpenter talks so often about. It's a movie marketed for, well, I mean, New England socialites, if I can say that much. It's definitely a movie marketed to grown ups. And I think about fourteen year old me in the theater watching this movie now. Um, but um, and I was absolutely not the audience intended for this. But yet it is absolutely a high art discussion of culture and of class. It wrapped up in the packaging of a Wolfman movie. And I, what I think this movie begins to suggest is the fundamental thesis of this show. Which is, um, there is no such thing as high culture and low culture. There's just culture. And culture speaks. And analysis and discussion and conversation can come in. Now, certainly there are things that are big and dumb that are for big and dumb folks. I mean, they're, they're, those things do exist. To be bitten by a wolf and turn into a wolf because you have a wolf inside you and it unlocks and unleashes that is ridiculous. I mean, nobody's going to argue that point. But to do that and then drape it over a discussion of class and art, a discussion of misogyny and faithfulness and marriage, of a discussion of masculinity and virility, and Jack Nicholson. To do those kinds of things is kind of crazy smart, is kind of crazy interesting, and which is uh, what we try to do with this show, is to be crazy smart and crazy interesting to lesser and greater degrees of success, perhaps, uh, about those kind of films that maybe don't belong in a film study syllabus. And so that is the analysis I would bring to this particular film. Thank you very much, dear co-host, for that analysis. Let's move to the point of the show in which we make a verdict, and we we say shelf or trash, and then we recommend our else's or instead's. I feel like we're going to have a divided jury, a hung jury today, uh, about this film, and so I'm very, very excited to hear what my co-hosts have to say. I begin with you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say? Shelf or trash? And then what would you say else or instead based on that shelving or trashing? 
Yeah, you don't need to own this movie. You can throw it in the trash. That's fine. It's not an essential film. It is not a timeless film. It's fun and it's silly. If you have the time to watch it, I wouldn't say that's a bad idea, but God, do not. You don't need to buy this movie. It should go in the trash. Um, instead, I think you should watch the best werewolf movie ever made, which is American Werewolf in London, period, end of story. It's the best werewolf movie ever. I, I will I, I will fight your disagreements. I, you're wrong. You're incorrect. I would then watch the silliest werewolf movie ever made, uh, which we talked about earlier this year, and that is Wolf Cop, which is yes. m- much, much dumber than this movie, but uh, is is a lot of fun and is so so stupid such a stupid movie but in the best possible way this is stupid in not good ways a lot of the time um wolf cop is stupid in the best kind of way Uh, wolf is just stupid in ways that are not always cool uh but it's stupid in ways that are fun a lot of the times like the the tequila thing well thank you for that very much mr dulcer miss alexander bohannon what do you have to say show for trash and what's your else or instead definitely trash this movie you don't need to see it um it's it, it it does things like I actually feel more edified after hearing my co-host dis- discussion because I hadn't previously contemplated either of those. I mean, I thought about the art thing, but I didn't really take it to that level and the baby boomer thing I didn't even think about as well. So, yeah, I think that's those are really valuable discussions. It might be worth it for me to watch it again with those in mind, but I probably won't. Um, I'd recommend Wolf Cop and uh, I don't know, I I would probably recommend the other um jack nicholson films we had discussed in our marathon so far i think those are much more deserving of your time than this one i'd probably put this one in a dead last place for um for the films we watched during you don't know jack part duh so uh that's it for me i am not going to say shelf but i think you absolutely should watch it so it's definitely a streamer for me but no i mean as far as purchasing a film to buy no absolutely not so in, in whatever extent that is a trash yes but then i would i want to think about it in terms of double bills in terms of my recommends and i want to recommend the office next to that's this actually film. something i was thinking about yeah i like that because it's about office politics and sort of you know that those kind of things I, I said the office i meant office space i don't know what i what i was doing just well now. i mean you could do the office office well, as you well could like too. the television series but yeah, we, and we've done a show on that. Um, so do check that out back in the archives, dear listener. Also, in terms of draping sort of some high art sort of, uh, critiques of culture on top of that, which is basically some form of exploitation, check out Spring Breakers from Harmony Corinne. And, uh, because I think intellectually is doing some similar sorts of things as, uh, this film. So do do check that out as much as you can. Thank you very much, dear co-host, for all of that. And, uh, I really, really appreciate that. Let's now move on to the show and the part where we talk about how we can have the conversation include the rest of you all out there hearing what we're saying, and we want to hear what you're saying, or rather, read it. And that is in those magical means that we all know as social media. Mr. Arthur Gordon, you know anything about social media means by which the conversation might be held? Certainly, Dustin. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast one word. Uh, we don't have any feedback coming in this week, but we had some likes and shares and all that good stuff. So we are appreciative of that. And we enjoy you taking the time to engage with our posts. We appreciate it. Uh, you could also find us on Google Plus and connect with us there. Or you could also email us good trash genre cast at gmail.com. 
Correct, correct. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. We did get some love on our Star Wars picks that we've posted here and there via social media, but we're not going to talk about that at this point because we have an entire show about that. The Good Trash Honor Cast spinoff show, Back to the Movies. Check that out, dear listener, where you hear our full Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens uh, review slash analysis, mostly review, uh, and, and whatnot there, but we're not going to address that at this point, but we do recognize and notice that you did say things about the things that we posted. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about those social media means by which conversations are held on the interwebs? I most certainly do. You can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, we had a pretty quick turnaround this week, so there really isn't. Uh, we recorded our last episode over the departed uh, Monday of this week that we're recording right now. Um, so it was kind of it was kind of a quick turnaround. So there's not a lot of feedback out there right now. We do have one bit of feedback coming in from Shane Arrington. That's at Shane Corn One. Uh, Shane Arrington, longtime listener of the show, wrote in to say he just watched Twelve Monkeys again, and it's one of his favorites. He would love for us to uh, do a month of Terry Gilliam. Uh, hashtag Brazil. Hashtag Time Bandits. We will not be doing a month of Terry Gilliam, uh, Shane, but we will be doing a Terry Gilliam film pretty soon. Um, it's it's something that's in the works. So. Um, yeah, we, we've been talking about uh, doing Terry for a while. He's definitely a big blind spot for me. Uh, I've, I've seen 12 Monkeys, and I've seen oh, a couple others. I haven't seen uh, Time Bandits or Brazil, which I know are like the big two, um, so or two of the big ones. So I haven't gotten around to those. Uh, but, yeah, that's something that's coming down. A lot of new follows, a lot of love for our um, post of the Departed versus Infernal Affairs episode, uh, mostly through Arthur's shameless use of hashtags uh, such as Force Awakens. And uh, 2015 and five words. But uh, hey, it fucking worked. So good job, Arthur. Um, well done. Well, well done. Well done. You're welcome. Um, but that's it. You know, a couple new followers, lots of retweets and favorites. You know, all that good, lovely stuff. But no, nothing in the way of a lengthy written feedback. Nobody uh, taking you to task uh, this week, Dustin. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Let us now move on and uh, discuss um, more things. And we're going to do the thing that we do always every week. And that is we're going to play a game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. That's right, dear listener, as we come to the end of You Don't Know Jack Part, duh, when we dedicate all this marathon of the month of December to film starring the one and only Jack Nicholson, we are going to pick our favorite Jacks. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Who's your favorite Jack Nicholson? I mean, I thought about this uh, for a little bit, Dustin, and um, I kept coming back to Chinatown. It's Jake. It's the it's my favorite Jack Nicholson. I, I think... Jack Nicholson's persona is so well suited to noir. It is, it's, it's, it's silly. It took, um, well into the seventies for Roman Polanski to be like, Hey, let's make a, a noir crime film. And you know what? Jack Nicholson would be a great detective in that. Um, and he is, he, he's absolutely astonishing. It, it's one of my favorite Jack Nicholson movies and it's, it's my favorite Jack Nicholson performance. I, I adore it. I mean, I, I love the shining as well. Um, I like his small and, and tragic character, uh, uh, there's only there's no uh, small parts, only small players, and um, his, his performance and his breakout role in Easy Rider is a great one. And yeah, it's a memorable one. But for me, I, I I just kept going down the list and I kept coming coming back to Chinatown. It's my, it's my favorite Jack Nicholson, bar none. Absolutely, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexander Bohannon, who's your favorite Jack? I think my favorite Jack um, is his performance in About Schmidt. 
No, I think it's actually oh, his no. performance in Something's Gotta Give. No, no, wait. I think it's actually his performance in Anger Management. I think that's one. No, no. You guys, I'm kidding. It's The Shining, obviously. Come on now. Like, uh, you about think... Schmidt wouldn't have been a bad pick, though. <laughs> no, I like About Schmidt about a lot. About Schmidt no, would have been a good pick. No. Something's Gotta Give wouldn't have been a bad pick. Yeah. There's something about Mary. No, wait. That's not. <laughs> that's... that's actually a film he's not in. But he's not in that. Shining's a good pick, though. No, The Shining is The Shining is my favorite um, I actually just watched The Shining this this year for the very first time, um, and it was incredible. Like I totally, ah, man, I lost my mind over it. And now, um, I know that St- Stephen King does not like the movie Shining. I still want to read the novel and that, then um, the sequel, Doctor Sleep. Um, yeah, I can't sp- speak enough words about the subtle tension, build up, oppression of his performance and the fact that here's Johnny was apparently an ad lib like yes yeah. story checks out yeah so i mean that just all of it just blows my mind and then i watched the documentary the making of that kubrick's uh wife directed the about the making of and it was really great it was a lot of good insight so uh, definitely the shining for me Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. I'm actually going to pick one of his rom-com roles. Uh, I love him in As Good As It Gets. Yeah. I, That's I, the other one I was trying to list, but I couldn't remember. Uh, I mean, OCD, Melvin, whatever his last name is, uh, with with Greg Kinnar and Helen Hunt. Yeah, when I, I, when I said uh, something's got to give earlier, I meant As Good As It Gets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I meant As Good As It Gets. I, I like it. That's a... a it's just a, a very charming movie. It absolutely is. And I, I really, I think he acts very, very well. I mean, he's a great actor. And he it's does a very good performance. A lot of good work and a lot of things. Greg Kinnear's very good in it. Helen Hunt's very good in it. It's a it's a good pick. It's an off-the-beaten-path pick, but it doesn't mean it's a bad one. Yeah, and I think it's the ensemble performance that makes his performance so much better. And, uh, you know, absolutely, The Shining's great. Easy Rider's great. Uh, Chinatown's great. Uh, Batman's great. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why he's fantastic and one of the most, you know, lauded actors of our time. But, um, yeah, I, I really love him in As Good As It Gets. So there you go, dear listener. We'd love to hear your picks. That about puts a pin in You Don't Know Jack Part do. I think so. I think we're done with Jack We're done Nicholson. talking about Jack Nicholson for a while. No, Marv's Attacks. Now, do it now. No? No. No. Okay. No. Just kidding. All right. Well, enough of this foolishness. Y'all, we're going to move on, and we are going to do the thing we always do and talk about what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. I am so excited to hear about all the fired upness that you guys are going to bring to this show. I go to my left, Miss Alexander Bohanna. Are you fired up this week? I am. Um, this weekend, I watched the uh, lauded anime uh, One Punch Man, and that is, uh, I finally caught that. It is really good. Um, it combines a bunch of different anime tropes into one show about a superhero who is. It's kind of Watchmen-esque in that a superhero is really bored and is overpowered as fuck. And he then, he, his, the reason why he's called One Punch Man is that he can um, punch any villain and immediately defeat them. Um, and so he's craving to have the fight, the end-all, be-all fight, and he's unable to have it because he just instantly defeats everyone. And it's really, really funny. Is the subtitle the Arthur Gordon story? Uh, it should be because well the one punch man is bald after all you're not bald but i mean <laughs> wish with no hair up uh, anyway sorry i feel like i put my foot in my mouth on that one. Oh, he will be soon it's okay 
really? Oh, name it one. Um, but that's about all I am fired up about. Of course, everyone is fired up about Star Wars, but we have a whole other show to be fired up about Star Wars on. So that's about everything here in this department. Thank you very much, Mr. Alexander Bohan. And Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up this week? No, not really. Not in anything uh, that isn't uh, Star Wars related. Um, I will say this. I'll keep it non-specific because we are doing an entire episode about The Force Awakens over on Back to the Movies. Uh, but I have had it up to my fucking eyeballs with think pieces. I really have. I just can't write. If you have something interesting to say about a film, write your goddamn review and make sure to include the thoughts that you have that make it worthwhile. But we should not be doing postmortems on the cultural relevance and importance of a film the fucking week that it comes out, guys. Come on. Like, give it six months. Give it till it hits the home video release. And then we'll talk about it. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't have these conversations, but like, let's really bandy them back and forth and think about what we're going to say. Uh, I, 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 know I like think pieces. I, th- I think there's some very well-written ones. I think there are very interesting ones out there. Um, but it just always seems like, so many people want to be the first one to say some to have a thought about something that hasn't been had yet. It's just I find it very frustrating. Um, but again, I you know I, as somebody who does this for fun, you know, no one is paying us to do this podcast. I, I think these conversations are infinitely worthwhile and very much worth having. But I just don't think anybody's going to have anything that profound to say, especially when we're trying to talk about the cultural importance or impact of a film when we're talking about it less than, you know, a month out from its initial release. And again, I'm not just talking about um, Star Wars uh, in particular, although there are lots of think pieces uh, firing on all cylinders right at the moment. Uh, I I just mean in general. I'm tired and I'm cranky, guys. not fired up in a good way. I'm just kind of annoyed with everyone. Tune into Back to the Movies to hear my think piece about The Force Awakens. Moving right along, uh, we are going to uh, talk about what's fired me up this week, and I am catching up on 2015 releases, and I caught two of them, and I love them both very, very much. I got to check out The Assassin, uh, a winner at Cannes for Best Director. I've been wanting to catch up with that. It it's really, really good. It looked really good. But it's tableau um, instead of set pieces. It is, uh, it's very, very still in, in, in a great many ways. It's very Buddhist in a great many ways. Um, there is action... What's beautiful and wonderful about it is that we have the super competent, super ninja assassin lady in the film. And as a result, the fights are very, very short. You know why? Because you dispatch some folk when you know what you're doing. And it doesn't go on for a while. And it, when it does go on for a while, it's because she's toying with you. And they, they're able to get that sort of ninjutsu uh, conf- competence, not confidence, competence. Um, out there in a way that I think is very, very interesting. And it is a gorgeously shot film in so much shallow focus. And so I think it's a great, great, great movie to be checking out. Also, I gotta check out How Ha, which is J-A-U-J-A, starring one Viggo Mortensen, who is, uh, you know, Aragorn. And, uh, it's, I don't know, it's a Patagonian western set in Argentina with a Danish person um the film breaks over and does something insane halfway through and i'm not going to talk about that at all because i feel like it's a spoiler to do so but it is um set up in a way uh speaking of tableau every single frame of this film is 
printable and hangable upon one's wall. I mean, intentionally so. And people posture and gesture in certain ways. It moves at, it's definitely a uh, example of what we call slow cinema. I think of Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives as another example of this kind of cinema from uh, Thailand. And uh, this film is absolutely part of that category, but it is gorgeous. Vigo does some great acting, and uh, there are some turns in plot and action that are so surreal and dreamlike, yet not so weird. And I love that about it. So, how ha, check it out. It's definitely worth your time. And that concludes this show, dear listener. We're so glad to have had this conversation about Jack Nicholson in Wolf. We're so glad to have done an entire month of You Don't Know Jack Part Duh, in which we talk about Jack Nicholson. I don't know why we went with the French Duh. Um, it's probably a Hot Shots thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Hot Shots thing. Um, but, um, nonetheless, we'll do the Frenchie name for the number two. Uh, we don't care. And, uh, we're very, very excited to have done that, but we're so excited also about next month. Next month, we begin our anti-trash marathon as Oscar begins to, uh, rear his ugly head yet again. And so we're going to do anti-trash films, films that are good enough for a film studies course by definition. That's right, Dustin. Next week, we kick off anti-trash it's that time of the year again and next week to kick off our anti-trash marathon we are going to start the month with our annual shelvy awards that's right next week we will be dropping the hebrew hammer we will be talking about our best worst movies we're going to be introducing the once more with feeling award which we'll talk about more next week and finally, uh, we'll hand out the Platinum Shelf, that movie that we think you must go out and buy. No matter what, you have to own that movie. And so we're going to be talking about all of that next week, dear listener. Uh, we're also going to be making a huge announcement about the future of the Good Trash uh, genre cast and uh, and what we have uh, envisioned for this show and for other uh, projects that we are working on. And so stay tuned. Come back next week, dear listener. Be ready for that because it'll be a fun time. There's no homework assignment for next week uh, as we kick off Anti-Trash. And uh, from all of us here at Good Trash Media, uh, myself, Dustin Dalton, Caleb, and Alexandra, uh, we just want to wish you a happy holidays, a Merry Christmas, spend some time with family, spend some time with friends, spend some time watching some movies, playing some games, enjoying pop culture, and thinking about it. And until next time, dear listener, we'll see you then. 